0: i hey. hey. Praised be Jesus Christ, peace be with you. Today, Saturday, March 20th, Saturday in the fourth week of Lent, coming up towards the end of the season here. And uh, I am out here for a hike as I'm talking to you today. It is uh gray, kind of chilly morning, <laughs> and uh, there's a little bit of it's just that, that lovely Oregon-like not quite rain but uh you can feel these these minute water droplets on your skin <laughs> as you're out walking it's uh yeah I you really can't call it rain because uh well I don't, maybe you can i don't know i'm not a a weatherologist but uh, it's just it's just damp it's just damp <laughs> but And yet the, the, the threat of rain is constantly on the horizon At any moment it might uh, Intensify To something more deserving of the name So we shall see I am not really dressed for it uh, In fact as I speak Right now it seems that the rain is getting a little bit A little bit heavier But uh, Well, we'll just see how this adventure goes. I'm on a new trail. This is called the Wild Iris Ridge. A friend recommended it to me recently. And uh, let me see. There's a crossroads here. I can choose to go left or right. And, uh, well, this is a classic Robert Frost situation. The left path looks very well tended, and it has a little sign on it. Um, and the right path looks questionable, suspicious. <laughs> I'm going to take the left path see where it takes me. Ah, Anyway, yeah, a friend told me about this trail recently. It's a little ways outside of town, heading west. Uh, it's right off of Bailey Hill Road, if you know the Eugene area. And uh, with a name like Wild Iris, you'd expect that there will be wildflowers out here. Maybe it's still too early in the season. But so far what I'm seeing mostly is uh, overgrown grass and weeds and thistle and uh, some gnarly looking old trees (laughs) and uh, piles of debris where trees have been cut down or bushes have been whacked back. But maybe things will change as I get a little higher up. So yeah, I'm out getting just a bit of recreation today. Um, We have a fairly light schedule today, just the typical Saturday things, confessions in the afternoon, and then the Latin Vigil Mass, no other meetings or appointments or anything. We do have the first confessions for the RCIA today, for the catechumens and the candidates which is pretty exciting. Um, the last few weeks we've been having first confessions for our uh, religious education students, for the, the children who will be making their first communion soon. So <laughs> it's, been, it's been delightful um, getting to pray with them before their first confessions. They've pr- mostly all been terrified and so getting to, uh, yeah, try to reassure them, praying over them before they they go in to receive the sacrament. But this week it'll be our adult catechumens and elect, many of whom I have been teaching and working with over the last, uh, what is it, six months, eight months, something like that. So uh Yeah. This is a wonderful milestone for them as we draw near to Easter. Oh, the rain is letting up a little bit, that's nice. What else is going on? Um, Well, next weekend will be our second session of the Melchizedek Project. That's a week from today. So the registrations will close today. Um, Several of those who came last time are not able to come this time because of different commitments or whatever is going on in their lives. But uh, a number of them will. I think I've, I've gotten confirmations either yes or no from all or maybe all but one of last month's participants. Last month we had eight. This month I think we'll have about five, maybe six. Still a good group. And uh, Father Ron, the pastor, is going to come and help us out this time as well, which is uh, just good. I'm trying to reach out to other priests also in the Eugene area to come and uh, be present at future sessions. Um, Because of child protection policies, we have to now have two separate groups, which is prudent, because we've got such a wide range of ages um, I kind of goofed up on that at the first session. I should have had it that way from the beginning. But uh, so we had to have two groups, one for the under 18 crowd, and then one for the young adults. And uh, so at least for this session, I'll be leading the young adult group. And then Father Ron, along with another chaperone, another adult volunteer, will lead the group for the, uh, the minors, high school age uh, guys. So it'll be a bit different from the first session, but we'll still be able to come together um, in the church for our morning prayer and mass and for the holy hour. And I think it might be good, especially for the the younger ones, to actually have their own group, because I did notice at the last session the younger, the younger guys were pretty quiet, a little bit less willing to, uh, to speak up, um, which is understandable. I would have been the same way at their age in a group like this. So I hope that they might be a little bit more free and able to get a little bit more out of it um, in an even smaller group, kind of with their own peers. And Father Ron is very good too. (laughs) I think, uh, yeah, I think they'll, they'll benefit a lot from this. So looking forward to that. So next Saturday, I won't record. I'll, I'll try to record on Friday, so you'll get next week's episode. And then uh, the following Saturday, it's amazing to think, but we'll already be uh, on the very eve of Easter. <laughs> It'll be Holy Saturday in the sacred Paschal Triduum. So, of course, I, I will not record an episode that day. And in fact, even in the schedule for the Tolkien Project, we won't be reading that day. It's a day set aside for meditation so uh that week there'll be no episode but I'll resume again I think it's April 10th uh that first Saturday in April right after my birthday (laughs) oh the rain is picking up again I don't know if you can hear it or not on the recording it's kind of intermittent so uh it's a bit refreshing this way (laughs) I get a little bit of a dry spell and then a little bit of a cold shower too reinvigorate my drooping spirit (laughs) I don't know how long this trail is but we're gonna find out together (laughs) so uh, yeah it's been this week has been pretty quiet Um, just normal activities in the parish we did have our staff meeting this week we have a monthly parish staff meeting and uh, Lately, I've been reading this book called Death by Meetings <laughs> by a guy called Pat Lencioni. It's a pretty popular book in kind of the business world, I think, and um, I'm not sure how old it is. I would guess about maybe 10 years. So it's fairly recent, but it's kind of well-established in the genre of leadership uh, training, I guess. And I've been reading this book because Archbishop Sample has been working with Pat Mancioni and his consulting firm, which is called the Table Group, um, to try to to try to facilitate better, uh, just a more cohesive organizational culture in the archdiocese, and better communication, and you know, um, better sort of teamsmanship <laughs> at all levels and this sort of thing. So um, I've been hearing Pat Lencioni's name. I also have kind of a an odd connection with Pat Lencioni because um, a classmate of mine and a great friend of mine in the seminary, his dad worked with Pat Lencioni at the table group for some time and then kind of split off and formed his own explicitly Catholic consulting firm which is called Evangelium and uh, this guy who founded Evangelium continues to work with Pat Lencioni, um especially for different sort of Catholic specific projects and dioceses and parishes and things like that. In fact, they came up here to work at the University of Oregon Newman Center um, last year so I was able to, to meet some of their people. So I've been hearing a lot about Pat Lincioni in the last year and uh getting to know some of his his thought and the themes of his work. Um, very helpful techniques I'm finding, just a very helpful way of sort of reframing um leadership and it's all it's all very compatible with sort of Catholic thinking, <laughs> the shape of, of the Catholic mind. Um, which makes sense. Lincioni himself is a Catholic. Uh and so I'm, I'm very glad that the Archbishop is bringing them in to sort of work with the Archdiocese and to work with our parishes and our pastors. So I've been just sort of trying to get a head start <laughs> on some of this stuff and learning a bit about uh, good leadership, good practices. Anyway, in this book, Death by Meeting, Death by Meetings, Pat Gioni talks about just how strange it is that so many leaders, like CEOs and executives, Um, all seem to dread meetings (laughs) they often describe it as the worst part of their jobs and he draws the analogy that would be a bit like a surgeon saying that you know he he, the worst part of his job is the time he spends in the operating room (laughs) or something like that you know what's the point of a leader if not to basically lead meetings. Meetings are sort of the place where a leader sh- ought, ought to shine, you know, because um, yeah, the point of the leader is to draw together the team and to, um, yeah, fo- foster and cultivate a vision and make sure the team is on mission and this sort of thing, you know. And so um, in, in the book he he provides some well, he, he provides basically a blueprint of four different kinds of meetings as part of just his overall project to uh, rethink different aspects of organizational culture and things that are dysfunctional, you know, to uh, sort of find a new approach. So he describes four different types of meetings that you, that you should be having. One is uh, the weekly stand-up. I mean, sorry, the, actually, actually it's the daily stand-up. The idea there is that with your team You have a a standing meeting every day. Um, Standing in the sense of, you know, it's just a constant. So you say every day at 9 or whatever, we're going to have the meeting. But also he says, don't sit down. (laughs) Have it standing up. That that will ensure you keep it short and to the point. But it's basically just a check-in. So everyone knows what everyone else on the team is doing that day. And so you can communicate, you know, vital information and Make sure everyone's on mission. (laughs) And then you have the, uh, let's see, then you have the uh, regular, I forget what he calls this meeting, but it's basically a staff meeting. But the point of this is um, to deal with short to medium term things that come up. And one interesting thing that he says about this meeting is you actually shouldn't set an agenda. Rather, you should have the whole team come together. You set aside about two hours. Whole team comes, everyone reports in but you keep the reporting very brief, like two minutes a person or less. And then based on what's come up at the meeting in that initial round of just check-ins from all the staff, then you discuss what are the, the priorities for this for this uh, this time period, however often you have the meeting, weekly, biweekly, monthly, which you'll determine based on the size of your organization and what, what you think is necessary. Um, but one key thing for this style of meeting is, uh, so it is it is sort of free form, you don't set the agenda ahead of time, but a key thing is, um, as the leader, you have to kind of direct it and determine what are the, the urgent and the necessary priorities, <laughs> so uh, you don't have something that happened at our staff meeting, which is this, for example, prolonged conversation, between two members of the staff regarding minute details of who and when and how the Palms will be delivered for Palm Sunday, (laughs) while everyone else is just sitting there trapped and zoning out, completely irrelevant to the whole staff. Um, This is something that could have been handled in a different setting. But everyone was held hostage, from the music director to the pastor, (laughs) while two members of the staff worked this out. Okay, so something interesting there. And the other two types of meetings he he describes are really interesting. The first two are sort of common sense, I guess, but then he describes the need for um, an ad hoc topical meeting. And a... um, So the ad hoc topical is basically a tactical planning meeting when you have something that comes up you call together the relevant members of the staff and you just discuss one problem or one question so it's very focused but you set aside a good amount of time for it like an hour or two at least and the interesting advice he gives for this is that you need to as the the organizer the leader the facilitator you need to take the time to determine what is the question like where really is the point of uh of division and put that front and center he talks about the need to um to uh yeah really just put conflict (laughs) at the front you know front load the conflict like in a, a hollywood movie they have found that if there's no conflict in the first 10 minutes of a movie audiences will tune out you know they 'll change the channel or whatever they 'll leave the theater and uh, so he says that in a meeting too right the reading The reason that our meetings are boring is because we we're un, un, 're we're, we 're conflict diverse and unconfrontational so of course he 's not advocating a kind of a you know absurdly aggressive style of meetings, but he, what he is advocating is that we really grapple with the issues where we differ because it 's out of that sort of um fruitful division, that fruitful difference, that uh, we can really approach the key issues for our organizations and come up with a strategy to move forward. So that's the tactical. And the fourth one is a strategic planning meeting. It's basically a quarterly strategic review. So his uh, advice is to have it four times a year, I think. Quarterly, and, you, and he also recommends having it off site. And you basically take a whole day and you have the whole team there, and you just review the long term um, goals and the mission and how our organizational activity is uh, pr- you know, progressing the mission. And uh, it, it, that's pretty exciting, and I don't really know of any parishes that do it. Now at St. Mary's. We have a, an annual kind of a staff retreat, which I participated in back in August. And it was like half a day. It was the, just basically the morning, like 8 to noon or so. And there was a meal. Mostly it was games. It was a little bit of prayer. But we just did some little activities that were kind of, okay, it's fine. It's kind of fun. Kind of cheesy. <laughs> you know the kind of games I'm talking about. But there was certainly no strategic discussion. There was no um, you know, no attempt at planning. Now I do know, actually as I think of it, St. Alice Parish over in Springfield, where Father Mark our housemate is the pastor. I know they have this kind of meeting. I remember uh, sometime back in January, I think, they had a, uh, a day of just strategic planning for Lent, where they talked about like okay, what are our Goals as a parish for Lent. What are we going to do for this season? So I think that's maybe that's more of an ad hoc topical meeting. I don't know, but anyway, just thinking about this framework is very helpful for me as a uh, an up and coming leader in the church one day, not very far away. Just think about yeah, practically, how do you lead a group of people? How do you form uh, a staff? into a team united around common goals and a common vision and where you can channel people's activity um, and their their drive and their passion towards the unifying goals of the organization of the parish which ultimately of course the reason that a parish exists is to save souls to preach the gospel and to glorify God and uh, what I, I just see in a lot of places in Here at St. Mary's, um, it's no different. This is a large parish with a lot of different moving parts. And what you get a lot of times is people who are compartmentalized and they each have their own ministry and their own objectives. And, you know, that's to be expected. But how does it all fit into the bigger picture? That's the question a lot of times that I think is not getting answered. And so, um, yeah, the staff meeting this week just brought some of this to the forefront of my mind. Okay, so... I, uh, let's see, there's another crossroads here, one where the trail goes up, one where it goes down, so I'm taking the downward sloping trail and, uh, hoping that I remember the choices I made (laughs) when I end up coming back, uh, so I don't get lost out here on Wild Iris Ridge. But I do have my phone, so if I really get lost, I can always check my GPS. Okay, actually, I'm going to turn around and go the other way because I see some people up ahead who are coming this way. And uh, I would rather avoid them. <laughs> so I'm going to go up the higher, the higher road. Um, another thing that came up for me this week, just as I was talking to a friend the other day, yesterday, really, is, um, well, there's a an wonderful analogy from St. Bernard of Clairvaux which uh, he directs at apostles, at all those who are living the apostolic way of life, which is to say the missionary, mission-oriented way of life. There's a fruitful distinction between disciples and apostles. The disciples are the students of the Lord, students of the Master. Discipuli in Latin, I mean, it literally means Students when my Latin professor would come into the class, a Mount angel she's a wonderful Franciscan nun, and she would say every day, Salvete, discipuli. We would say, Salve, magistra. Hello, students. Hello, teacher. (laughs) So the disciples are the students of the Lord, but the apostles, apostoloi, in Greek means those who are sent. Those who are sent. So in Hebrews... St. Paul refers to Jesus as the Apostle of the Father, which is interesting, because he's sent into the world at his incarnation. And, of course, the 12 apostles are sent out to the four corners of the world to preach the Gospel. Anyway, St. Bernard's word to apostles is that uh, there are many in the world who are channels, but there are few who are cisterns, or reservoirs, we might say. And there's an urgent need for apostles to be not channels, but reservoirs. That is to say, um, not simply to give away immediately all that we receive, but to give from the overflow, to give from the excess. Like if you imagine a reservoir that's just filled all the way up to the brim with water, and it overflows and the water that spills out um, you know, nourishes the fields all around it so that grass springs up and yet the reservoir is never depleted whereas if you have a channel, the water flows through it to whatever the destination is out into the sea or whatever and the channel itself uh, is dry you know, once the water stops being poured in uh, it all flows through the channel and the channel itself is left dry and fallow. So there's a fruitful distinction here to be made, you know, in the life of an apostle, in the life of any Christian. My friend and I were talking yesterday and he was just just saying, not complaining, just noting. Um, You know, he said, and he's he's very devoted, uh, very devout. And uh, he said, you know, I'm spending all this time in prayer I'm really spending a lot of time in prayer <laughs> and he is every day you know hours in prayer um, and on his day off each week at the parish he, he's on a pastoral year as well every week he spends a good portion of the day kind of as a day of recollection you know like I'm trying to do once a month well he's doing this every single week and yet he said I'm, I'm finding very often that You know, I'm just kind of running on empty. And uh, to use St. Bernard's language, you know, it's like the the channel is drying up. I'm pouring everything out into apostolic activity. And the people are so needy. (laughs) So many people are in need. And uh, he just wants to help them, to be of service to them, to give away the good things he's received. And yet then he finds himself dried up, spent, weary, and I've had the same experience at different times. So we we're just discussing this analogy of Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, and uh, talking about, well, h- how can we have, how can we become reservoirs? How can we become cisterns and give from the overflow, give from the, the interest, if you will, like an endowment fund where you never touch the principal, <laughs> you just give away from the, the interest, the return. So we were discussing this, and what we concluded together is that the, the answer cannot be that we just need to spend more time in prayer. Frankly, there is no more time. <laughs> it would be one thing if we were in the cloister or living a monastic life, but already we're, we're, we're committing a substantial amount of time to prayer every day and every week, and we're living this commitment, not perfectly, but and there's room for improvement there. But the answer is not sort of to, uh, you know, squeeze four more hours of prayer into the day or something. It's just impossible. What we concluded, rather, is the answer has to be that the Lord's inviting us to turn to Him precisely in the moments where we feel spent, where we feel weary, where we feel there's nothing left to give. You know, when we feel even just very, very concretely, when we feel hungry, when we feel tired, Uh, exhausted basically those moments are a choice and the choice is whether um, in that moment we're going to rely upon our own resources or whether we're actually going to turn to the Lord there offer him the weakness offer him the experience and ask him to replenish us and to renew us because he makes this wonderful promise doesn't he to the woman at the well the Samaritan woman which we heard a couple of weeks ago uh, this gospel he says if you knew who it is who asks you for a drink then you would ask him you would ask me and I would give you living waters springing up to eternal life beautiful beautiful promise of the Lord and wh- what's the one condition to receive it well we must ask we must recognize who he is and ask him for the gift. And he promises to those who ask, he will give it. Living waters. And so the image here is of, a, a, you know, a well, if you want, to use another word, a cistern, a reservoir. But a well, not just a, a cistern built to catch the rainwater, but a well dug into the earth over a spring, which is continually replenished from a deep and mysterious source, from a hidden place, deep down. And, uh, and so in this way, if we really build up the habit, and I think a big part of it is just building up the habit of asking, if we build up the habit of asking the Lord there, you know, not just looking at the hunger, looking at the tiredness that we feel, not just getting stuck in that, and, and feeling it to be a time of relying on our own resources, of thinking, okay, well, I got all this stuff to do, and I'm just exhausted, and it just sucks... But rather, in the very moment, to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I am weak. Replenish me with your life. Renew me with your spirit. That's the way that an apostle has to live, you know? It's not just a matter of, uh, of having our hours of prayer and then spending the rest of our time in activity. And sort of this pendulum swinging back and forth. But the way we're supposed to be living, our apostolic ministry and our whole lives as apostles is being continually replenished by God. And this is his promise to us as well. In another place he says, come to me, come to me, all you who are overburdened, who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Not just at certain times in certain places when we have days of recollection or time to spend in the chapel, but at all times every time throughout our lives as we're working as we're engaging in ministry that the Lord will give us rest and give us life so that's my little reflection for the day <laughs> it came about through a great conversation with a dear friend and uh, I suppose that'll probably suffice for the theology segment as well, won't it? <laughs> so often this is what happens and no matter what I talk about I circle back to theology well, The podcast, though, is not yet over because, listen, we still have to talk about some very important things that have happened in the world of Middle-earth. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. In next time and rid us of your stupidity. So, we are at the very end of the Two Towers. I finished I finished the Two Towers, I think yesterday, if not the day before. And uh, tomorrow, well, I don't know, I'm a little bit muddled up on the schedule, but I think either today or tomorrow, we're starting Return of the King. So we're coming, I mean, we're coming to the donumente, we're coming to the, the end, the tying up of all the threads here. At the end of uh, the Lord of the Rings saga. Some interesting things have happened (laughs) since we talked last week. We've continued following Frodo and Sam, of course, as they make their journey to Mordor. And um, as they are journeying through these black lands... um, Hold on a sec. I've come to another crossroads. So there's a little sign that says, Loop Road to Wild Iris Ridge Trail. Sure enough, there is a road here. Hmm. Just a little curious. I I thought I was already on the Wild Iris Ridge Trail. Well, I will follow the road for a little ways and see where it takes me. All right, anyway, uh, as they are wandering, you know, with Gollum as their guide through the lands, drawing near to Mordor, they pass for a while through this beautiful uh, country called Ithelien, the Garden of Gondor in bygone days. Now, it's part of the enemy's territory, and yet it has not fallen wholly under his sway. It's still beautiful, although it bears marks of the desecration of orcs and wicked men who have passed through it. And yet it's still beautiful, and nature sort of is fighting, fighting against them, <laughs> fighting against the uh, the denizens of Mordor who want to subdue it. There's a, a place where Sam finds, there's a a filthy pit that orcs have dug, and uh, it's filled with detritus and nasty things. And yet, he, he sees that uh, already vines and flowers are growing over it to create a, to sort of veil it from sight, as if fair Ithilien itself, seeking to preserve its modesty, is covering over this shameful display and will soon uh, have removed it, you know. So it's this beautiful country they pass through and the hobbits' hearts are lightened. Of course, Gollum is retching and (laughs) disgusted by it all. And they get a bit of a reprieve here. Sam makes for Frodo a nice dinner of stewed rabbit. And then the smoke attracts the attention not of orcs, as they fear, but of men of Gondor, led by Captain Faramir, the brother of Boromir. And they have a, a tense... Uh, meeting in the beginning Uh, but Faramir and his men end up bringing the hobbits back to their encampment their secret hiding place behind a waterfall a beautiful uh, a very beautiful location somewhere that the orcs have not yet discovered and uh, basically the task of their company led by Faramir is to patrol through Ithilien and to uh, to dispatch the orcs wherever they find them, you know, and try to to try to win back this country, and prevent Mordor from reaching its uh, dark claws even beyond the boundaries, further into the west. So they have a a meeting with Frodo and Sam, and Faramir learns sort of their whole story. Sam even slips up and mentions the ring, and. Here, Faramir shows the strength of his character. In many ways, he's much like Boromir, and yet also very different. And we can see how different in the moment when he learns of the ring. Because uh, he he will not take it. And in fact, he's even sworn an oath to Frodo. If I were to see this ring lying by the side of the road, I would not pick it up. I would not use the enemy's weapons to make war upon him. So he's a, a... He's wiser than his brother, with all respect to Boromir, (laughs) who has fallen and made a good end, whatever twists may have lain along the way of his life. So they have this meeting with Faramir, which revives their spirits. They have a a nice meal, and they're comforted by the presence of friends in unlooked-for places as the lady Galadriel had prophesied to Frodo that he would likely find friends along the way in places he did not expect. Then they prepare to go on, led by Gollum, to the pass of Cirith Angol. Faramir has heard of the place and he strongly discourages them from going this way, but he doesn't know much about it. The men of Gondor, he says, never go that way. So they have no more information to share than that. But he knows that it's a black place. It's not a safe place. He discourages them from taking that course. And yet, Frodo says, he's given his word to Gollum. And uh, Gollum has guided them well so far in the wilderness. And so they, they agree to follow Gollum on this black way. So they cross into the the country nearest to Mordor they have to cross this road which leads uh, to the very tower of Minas Morgul where the black riders the ring wraiths, dwell Frodo is strangely attracted to it by the power of the ring but they pull him away and they make a desperate escape a flight up into the cliffs they see the the, the black king of the wraiths leading his troops away to make war on Gondor and the West. And they know that they're at the very crux of, 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 of history, you know, that uh, time is, is slipping away and they must make haste. So they climb up the long secret stairway in the mountains until they come to the very pass of Kirith Ungol, this uh, black tunnel, dug through the mountains. And there's a sickening, overpowering stench that comes out of it of, of uh, something unnameable, something horrible. The hobbits want to turn away, but Gollum leads them in, into the blackness where they can see nothing. And they soon lose track of him. And they fear the worst, that he's led them there just to abandon them in the darkness where they will come to a bad end and he'll be able to come and retrieve the, the precious, the ring, from their corpses, which, of course, is Gollum's plan, essentially, but it's even worse than that. He doesn't just want them to sort of starve to death in the blackness where they've lost their way. What they have not yet realized is that Kirith Ungol is the nest, the noisome, dark lair of a horrible creature out of the depths of time. Shelob, she's called, the Spider Queen, this horrible uh, monster from the Black Pit who emerges to hunt her prey, these two hobbits whom Gollum has brought to her. And we learn that Gollum, when he escaped from Mordor years ago, he met Shelob and he worshipped her. And ever since then, She has walked with him, Tolkien says, in the black places of his mind. He has never been free of her. And he's led the hobbits there so that um, he can offer them to her as food, with the hope that once she's consumed them, she'll leave behind their bones and their garments and he might find the ring in the midst of them. Horrible, (laughs) horrible, and yet not surprising. So has Gollum betrayed them? Well, yes. <laughs> yes, he has. And we see the way that it all unravels. Um, in the darkness, Frodo remembers this phial of light that the Lady Galadriel gave him, this sort of bottled star, bottled starlight from Lothlorien. He brings it out, and for a time, Shelob is uh, driven away, you know, There's a wonderful scene where Frodo draws his sword, Sting, and holding aloft the vial of elven light, he advances upon this horrible, monstrous beast who retreats from him. She's blinded, and she is, uh, for the first time, you know, in her immeasurably long life in which she has consumed elves and men alike and orcs too, she feels doubt and perhaps even fear she has for long, long centuries, millennia, hid beneath the mountains from the light of sun and moon and star, but now a star has descended into the very earth, and so the Spider Queen retreats into dark places. And the hobbits make their way through Kirith Angol, out to the other side of the pass into the country of Mordor. They have to hack through a horrible spider web <laughs> that covers the exit, but Finally, they escape, and as they run in the free air, Frodo is laughing and shouting and crying out. He's forgotten his danger, and Sam is running after him, and he puts the file of light away, and as soon as he does, Shelob comes out from another hidden exit and attacks Frodo. Sam tries to help, but Gollum comes out of nowhere, leaps on him from behind, and uh, tries to throttle him. And so Sam is caught up and, and he, he fights against Gollum, you know, with unexpected fierceness and Gollum flees from him. But before he can get over to Frodo, he finds that Shelob has already bitten him and wrapped him up in cords of spider webs, you know, like a, an insect that she's going to carry away and consume. But Sam <laughs> makes war on Shelob and... Uh, he gets underneath of her and stabs her belly with his knife and uh, says that well, the hide of Shelob is tough and he doesn't do any damage, but Shelob, with infinite malice, tries to crush him under her great bulk and thereby she sticks herself on his blade with uh, you know the, the greatness of her own strength that no elf, nor man, nor hobbit could ever match, she impales herself on the spike, and uh, she experiences an agony like she's never felt. And then, so she retreats, she hobbles away, and she she's, um, yeah, hardly able to leave. But Sam pursues her, and she runs from him. For the first time, the Spider Queen <laughs> runs away, pursued by a mortal creature. And, of course, it's Sam Gamgee of the Shire who has bested her. It's a wonderful scene. Wonderful. But then he goes back and finds Frodo, is, appears to be quite dead. He's uh, wrapped up, and he, he cuts him free, but Frodo is cold and lifeless, and he won't be awakened. And so Sam has this horrible decision to make. Should I stay with the Master, with, with Mr. Frodo, or is it up to me now? To carry the ring on into dark places alone and he realizes he's the last member of the company left standing and the task the mission now falls to him he must be the one to carry the ring on to Mount Doom so weeping he takes up the ring and he takes the vial of starlight and sting Frodo's sword and he bids farewell to him, and he says, if I, could, if, if I could ask the Lady Galadriel, the Lady of the Wood, for one thing, my only wish would be that I may come back here and find you again. Then he departs. But uh, as he begins to leave, to take his first steps into Mordor, heading toward an unknown fate, a company of orcs comes marching up the road, and he puts on the ring so he can hide. And the ring gives him the ability to understand the servants of Sauron, so he can understand their speech. And he hears that they find Mr. Frodo, and they carry him away, and back, back into Shelob's tunnels, back into the dark places under the mountain. They have a shortcut to their tower, and they're under strict instructions. If they find any, any, uh, any of the free races, you know, men or elves or or halflings, on the road. They're to carry them away to the tower and strip them. And every last thing they find, clothing or or a ring, for example, it's all to be sent to the dark tower of Sauron. So Frodo is being carried away to a fate worse than death. Sam pursues them. He realizes that his place is with Frodo... And he's, he, he, in his mind, begs all the great and the good, you know, Gandalf and Elrond and Galadriel, to forgive him and to understand. And he says, my place is with Mr. Frodo. I can't leave him. So he pursues them. And as he runs along behind, he hears one of the orcs say that this hobbit is not dead. He's just been pierced by Shelob's bite, which paralyzes a creature for a time but he will soon wake and when he comes to he'll find himself surrounded taken hostage by servants of Sauron and that's where the two towers ends (laughs) and so we're left waiting uh, desperately to learn what happens next that of course will be matter for the next book so I want to read these last chapters of the two towers through the theme of friendship of course we see most uh strikingly the friendship of Sam and Frodo in these chapters and we've seen it throughout the book throughout the books I should say Um, think back to when you know Sam who knows Frodo better than anyone in the company realizes that he's gonna try to go off alone into Mordor and he pursues him then and he uh, he's stubborn and stout-hearted and he says if you if you try to leave me, Mr. Frodo, then I'll, I shall drown here. <laughs> you know, he throws himself into the water. He can't swim. But he's that dead set on pursuing Frodo. He won't be left behind. And thank goodness, because Frodo would never have made it far without Sam. You know, Frodo says as much. It's great. There's this wonderful uh, segment, I think it's in chapter 8, The Stairs of Cirith Ungol where uh, Sam and Frodo are having this conversation about what kind of a story they've fallen into. I think I quoted this last year, actually, when I was reading Lord of the Rings uh, during last Lent. But here it is again. It's, it's so it's so splendid. So they're, they've taken a, a pause, a break, upon the stairs before they get to Kirithangol. Sam is talking about how little he likes the place. You know, the smell of it. Already he can detect the stench of Shelob. "'Well, I don't like anything here at all,' said Frodo. "'Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air, and water all seem accursed. "'But so our path is laid.' "'Yes, that's so,' said Sam. "'And we shouldn't be here at all, if we'd known more about it before we started. "'But I suppose it's often that way. "'The brave things and the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. "'Adventures, as I used to call them.' I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for, because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of a sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it, with the tales that really mattered, or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seemed to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back. Only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story, and not outside it, call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo. But I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know. And you don't want them to. No, sir, of course not. Baron now, he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrim, and yet he did. And that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Eärendel. And, why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo. But the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later, or sooner. And then we can have some rest and some sleep, said Sam. He laughed grimly. And I mean just that, Mr. Frodo. I mean plain, ordinary rest and sleep and waking up to a morning's work in the garden. I'm afraid that's all I'm hoping for all the time. All the big, important plans are not for my sort. Still, I wonder if we shall ever be put into songs or tales. We're in one, of course, but I mean put into words, you know, told by the fireside or read out of a great big book with red and black letters years and years afterwards. And people will say, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy, the famousest of the hobbits, and that's saying a lot. (laughs) It's saying a lot too much, said Frodo. (laughs) And he laughed, a long, clear laugh from his heart. Such a sound had not been heard in those places since Sauron came to Middle-earth. To Sam, suddenly, it seemed as if all the stones were listening. And the tall rocks leaning over them. But Frodo did not heed them. He laughed again. Why, Sam, he said, to hear you somehow makes me as merry as if the story was already written. But you've left out one of the chief characters, Samwise, the stout-hearted. I want to hear more about Sam, Dad. Why didn't they put in more of his talk, Dad? That's what I like. It makes me laugh. And Frodo wouldn't have got far without Sam, would he, Dad? Now, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, you shouldn't make fun. I was serious. So was I, said Frodo, and so I am. We're going on a bit too fast. You and I, Sam, are still stuck in the worst places of the story. And it is all too likely that some will say at this point, shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read any more.' Maybe, said Sam, but I wouldn't be one to say that. Such a beautiful passage. For me, this, this passage is so evocative of, of uh, yeah, just the deep truth about friendship, uh, especially in dark places. And uh, so another thing that we see from this dialogue between Frodo and Sam is Sam's motivation. He, he confesses, you know, the, the, the great plans, the great, the, the, uh, you know, the great overarching vision of things. That's not for me. You know, he's a. He, he, and we, we even see this shortly thereafter when, at first, he takes upon himself the burden of the ring. He, he feels this, this pressure, this expectation that he must be the one now to complete the quest. And yet, when he realizes that Frodo, even though he's dead apparently, is still in danger, he can't go on. He goes after Mr. Frodo and he hopes that the great ones will understand and forgive him. His motivation all along is one of friendship and loyalty it's one of love for frodo and uh that's what that's what draws him on into dark places far beyond what he ever imagined you know places he would find himself through the darkness and uh and on <laughs> into the other side whatever may lay there and so uh we can just see well, I would say there's a bit of a difference here between the motivations of Frodo and Sam. Not to say that Frodo is not motivated also by love, but we can see that Frodo, Frodo in a particular way is convicted of the, you know, the sort of the cosmic scale, the historical scale of what they're doing. He feels upon his shoulders the weight of, you know, the, the, the future of all Middle Earth <laughs> hangs upon the success or the failure of his quest. And uh, so his motivation—he he knows that he must go on into Mordor. He must suffer whatever he, he whatever he, whatever will come his way, in order to see the Ring through to Mount Doom, to see this quest through to the end. And uh, he's willing to go on alone. You know, in fact, we see have seen many times his uh, intention is to go on alone. And so there's this there's this difference in motivations between Frodo. and and Sam Gamgee. And that's why they need one another (laughs) as they go along into the black places. Frodo recognizes in this moment he wouldn't have got far without Sam, and it's true. He wouldn't have even made it that far as Cirith Ungol without Sam along. But without Mr. Frodo, Sam would never have got started, (laughs) you know. And so there's an important lesson here, and in the words of St. John Paul the Great, and we hear it elsewhere, too, in the tradition, I think he got it from somewhere else, but I don't know where now, but um, there's a great phrase, you know, no man is an island. No man is an island. Uh, on our own, we fall, because uh, we're, not meant, we're not meant to go through life alone. The Lord says in Genesis, uh, it is not good that the man is alone. And so we see that even before the fall, (laughs) even in the state of original innocence, there is, where you know where we there were no consequences of of sin. You know, Adam wasn't lonely, and yet there is this, just this deep reality written into the very nature of a human being that we're not meant to be isolated. We're not meant to be solitary. Now solitude sometimes is good, (laughs) but we're not meant to go through life. We're not meant to go through the journey, the great quest on our own, are meant to be part of a company, are meant to be part of a fellowship. And uh, Sam understands this intuitively, being simple, a simple hobbit, and Frodo comes to learn it over the course of the journey. And uh, so w- one lesson that we just learned from this, this uh, end of the Two Towers is the necessity and the great good of friendship we also see some counterexamples. You know, we see what passes for friendship among the orcs. <laughs> These creatures that are incapable, really, of true friendship. They talk about one of their fellow soldiers who was captured by Shelob. They thought he was dead, and then weeks later, they found him strung up in a in a dark cavern. Uh, writhing and glaring at them and he was all wrapped up in Shelob's cords and she was saving him as a delicacy you know for another day and they say we didn't cut him down <laughs> best not to interfere with what Shelob is doing they just laughed at him and went on their way so there's there's no honor among orcs <laughs> no loyalty no friendship among servants of the dark tower and we also see there's a very interesting scene with gollum Uh, which happens just after the one that I quoted. So Frodo and Sam fall asleep there, uh, up high in the mountains in the dark. Gollum has sneaked away, and we later learn that where he's been is talking to Shelob, telling her about the tasty hobbitses that he's bringing her for her meal. But the next paragraph we read is, um, so they, they've just fallen asleep, and it says, And so Gollum found them, hours later when he returned, crawling and creeping down the path out of the gloom ahead. Sam sat propped against the stone, his head dropping sideways, and his breathing heavy. In his lap lay Frodo's head, drowned deep in sleep. Upon his white forehead lay one of Sam's brown hands, and the other lay softly upon his master's breast. Peace was in both their faces. Gollum looked at them. A strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and gray, old and tired. A spasm of pain seemed to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up towards the pass, shaking his head, as if engaged in some interior debate. Then he came back, and slowly, putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously, he touched Frodo's knee, but almost the touch was a caress for a fleeting moment could one of the sleepers have seen him they would have thought that they beheld an old weary hobbit shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time beyond friends and kin and the fields and streams of youth an old starved pitiable thing then sam wakes up and uh he's rough with Gollum. he calls him a sneak and says hey you what are you doing he sees him pawing at Frodo or so he thinks and Gollum is offended and uh, from that moment we see of course his heart is hardened but he had this moment of almost a kind of repentance you know almost a kind of a a kind of a yeah a a metanoia (laughs) where he questions betraying the hobbits turning them over to Shelob because he sees this glimpse of them uh, this glimpse of love, this glimpse of friendship, this glimpse of rest, even in such dark, horrible, and dangerous places, because these hobbits are together, they can be at rest. Their hearts can be at rest. In Gollum, Gollum is doomed to live a restless life. He is constantly hungering. He's constantly on the hunt, on the run we get this other glimpse of Gollum um, at the pool beneath the great waterfall in Ithilien where the men of Faramir's company have their hiding place. You know, he goes there to find fish and Frodo observes him without him noticing. And we hear kind of Gollum's monologue (laughs) where he's just constantly muttering to himself when he thinks no one else is around. And it's just this constant stream where he's He's ruminating over past wrongs, and he's talking about the nasty hobbitses, you know, who left him in the wilderness, and then commenting on the nice fish and <laughs> dreaming about, you know, the day he'll get the precious again and he'll be able to, you know, make uh, make right all the things that have gone wrong and do do uh, do justice to those who have betrayed him. And so we see he's constantly just on this wheel of uh, gnawing over past wrongs. And he can never be at rest, even in that fair place, in that beautiful place where he has the thing that he's most longed for for many long weeks. He has fresh fish to eat, and yet his heart is not at rest. His, uh, his cravings can never be satisfied. He's doomed to live this life like a, a wraith upon the wind. You know, think of the image from Dante's Inferno, from that very first circle where he meets Paolo and Francesca who are carried away, their eternal punishment is to be whipped around on the, on the winds of passion, They're constantly to be in motion, never at rest, never together, because in life they were carried away by their passions. So now their eternal destiny, their eternal doom, is to be forever in motion, never at peace. Well that's what we sort of see Gollum living out, and yet there is just this moment, you know, Frodo always says there's some good left in him, We get just a glimpse, just a flash of it here, when he sees Frodo and Sam sleeping in peace. And of course, what Tolkien, the narrator, says here that, you know, for a moment, they would have, if they'd seen him, they would have thought he was just an old wizened hobbit, (laughs) carried along by the stream of time far beyond friends and kin. Well, that's exactly what he is. Whatever else Skolem is, you know, he was once a hobbit, he was once Smeagol. And he once knew the pleasures of friendship and family and what it is to love and to be loved, which is what he was made for. It's what he was made for. And now he's been carried so far beyond it, he's almost forgotten. And yet, in seeing Sam and Frodo in that black place, for just a moment, he catches an echo in his heart of the joy he once knew. And, uh... From a, uh, as, as from a deep place in himself, this resounding echo of what he was made for. And of course, he could go back. He could, even now, even now, in this dark place, he could repent. He could make a different choice. He could turn aside from the road that he's set before them and move on to a different path. But his heart is hardened. And this is the tragedy. Sam wakes up and sees him there, and because he knows what Gollum's like, he, uh, he's rough with him. He calls him a sneak, you know? And for Gollum, it's like a door slamming closed in his face. And, he rea- and he, in, in, in himself, he realizes uh, that such joy, such pleasure is not for him. And his heart is set once again upon the black plans he's devised in the darkness with the Spider Queen. But what might have happened what might have happened? Well, if Frodo had woken up first, for example, you know, Frodo, who was always merciful towards Gollum, what might have happened? Could even Gollum so late in the game have been redeemed? Who is to say? I suspect, maybe, there was a glimmer of hope there, wasn't there? But that's not the way that the story goes. So... um we see here these different well we see here the, the one shining image of friendship, and then we see these the orcs who lack any kind of friendship. They're worse than beasts in that respect. And we see Gollum, who has been made beastly by all that he has suffered and all that he has done, and yet in whom there remains a ghost, a wisp of the hobbit he once was. He still longs for friendship for love, and yet it it would be immensely difficult for him to return to that. And what he would need in order to be able to turn aside from his road and return to that one would be a steadfast friend who would be constantly merciful (laughs) with his weaknesses, with his relapses into past behavior, and who would continue to walk with him and abide with him uh, all along the journey. Blessed are those who have a friend such as that. Um, The book of Sirach says, A faithful friend is a sturdy shelter. He who finds one finds a treasure. So thus ends my treatise on friendship (laughs) today. (laughs) Um, One, I suppose, just last comment is that for St. Thomas Aquinas, who we think of sometimes as just very dry and analytical, his definition of charity actually is friendship with God. amicitia dei, friendship with God. And uh, there's a lot to unpack in that definition. We're just one thing to draw our attention to is that in the, in the classical tradition, you know, friendship is distinguished by a kind of equality between the friends. It's this relationship of equality. So how can we be friends with God when God is infinite and we're just finite little creatures? Well, the answer is God himself makes us, in a sense, his equal. He not only humbles himself to become like us, to become our equal in the incarnation, but he raises us up to share in his own divine life. That's the life of sanctity, the life of grace. And so what God desires is friendship with us. He wants to raise us up, to share, to be in communion with him, to share in his very life, in all of his goods. So there's something about friendship, actually, that pierces to the very heart of the Christian life, to the very heart of the divine mysteries, to the very heart of what we as human beings are made for. Not isolation, but communion. Communion. So uh, that, will, that will suffice <laughs> for today's reflections on friendship in the Lord of the Rings. But we will see as we get on into the return of the king, just what it means that Frodo has come into the dark places, not on his own, but with a steadfast and faithful friend. And uh, in talking about friendship, I think we're touching one of the very, very key themes of this epic saga that Tolkien has laid before us. Um, That reminds me, as I'm just wrapping up here, I need to check real quick and see, was there anything in the letters this week that I wanted to comment on? Um, Well, (laughs) as I just open up the the book here in my Kindle app, I see I highlighted this last line from letter 77. (laughs) Tolkien says, I'm afraid I have made a great mistake in making my sequel too long and complicated and too slow in coming out. It is a curse, having the epic temperament in an overcrowded age devoted to snappy bits. (laughs) Oh man, I feel that. (laughs) Hmm. Let's see, I think there's some other things that I was going to talk about, but there was one comment about he went to see a performance of Hamlet, which I thought would be an interesting thing to quote, because he has some thoughts about Shakespeare, but I'll save it for next week. I'll save those away for another time. So I'm on the trail now, heading back towards the trailhead. And uh, yeah, I think I'll just conclude here. I pray that you have a blessed Saturday and a great Sunday, the fifth Sunday in Lent. And yeah, as we just trek on towards Holy Week, the very heart of the liturgical year, just pray that all of you just get swept up in these mysteries, once again, that you're carried away by this great story in which we find ourselves. You know, like Sam and Frodo, we are all caught up in this great story of redemption, of salvation, of a God who loves us so much that he came to save us. And uh, people, you know, our different parts in the story come and go. They'll come to an end sooner or later, but the story goes on and we are carried away by it. So I pray that you experience that during the Holy Week and the Paschal Triduum, which are right around the corner. Friends, may God bless you, may he protect you from all evil, and may he bring you to everlasting life. Amen. Amen.